Well, today we are um, embarking on week two of a four-week series of messages where we're taking a look at um, several topics and what the Bible has to say about them. Uh, Last week, Catherine began the series with what the Bible has to say about itself. I want to say a quick word about next week, just a heads up that um, our, our topic for next week is what does the Bible have to say about sexuality and specifically homosexuality as we'll be taking a look at um, a few passages that are in Scripture um, that at times have been used uh, in, in a way of judgment or condemnation um, for persons who identify as LGBTQ. Um, Catherine will be preaching next week and looking at those verses um, in their own context and in the larger context of Scripture as a whole. And I offer that up to you, especially for those of you who may have children who come to worship with you. Um, I said this specific, particularly at the 930 service, but at this service as well, um, just so that you have a heads up in case that gives you an opportunity to decide uh, whether children would be with you in worship or would participate in our children's ministry during the 11 o'clock service instead next week. Um, I also want to say that While this is a four-week series, one of the things that we've talked about is doing more What Does the Bible Say About series and perhaps doing another one in 2023 based on some other topics that you all might like for us to explore. And so if there is uh, a subject that you would like for us to consider including in a future series, I invite you to jot that down on your connection card today, um, or you can, if you're with us online today, you can post a comment uh, in the chat on YouTube or Facebook um, or send us an email, however, but uh, would love to have your input as we prepare for future series. Today, our topic is poverty, and I want to start with a few statistics. For the year 2022, the standard that our federal government uses for defining the poverty line within the United States for a family of four is $27,750. It's not a lot, right? $27,750 for a family of four is the definition of the poverty line in the U.S. So far, for most of 2022, the poverty rate in the U.S. has hovered around 14% of the population, which accounts for about 45 million people in our country. Drawing the scale out wider, in 2021, 9.2% of the global population was considered to be living at a level of extreme poverty, which in global terms is defined as living on less than $1.90 per day. 9.2% of the global population, which accounts for almost 700 million people worldwide. Clearly, this is a relevant topic. This is something we should be considering and talking about. And one of the places we should be talking about it is in the church. Uh, And so we have a chance to take a look at what the Bible has to say, and it has a lot to say. In fact, there are over 200 verses in Scripture that pretty much regardless of which English translation you're looking at, uh, use the word poor. 
And that's just looking at the verses that specifically use that word. There are lots of other scripture passages that clearly make reference to poverty and wealth that also deserve our attention. We're going to listen to several of these along the way today. Um, You might even consider having a pen or pencil ready uh, to jot down some of the references that I will make uh, because there may be verses that you want to go back and look at more uh, later on. And we're going to start this morning in just a moment with a passage from Deuteronomy 15. But before we do, I want to invite you to join me in an exercise. I want to invite you to put your hands out in front of you. And the first thing I want to invite you to do is to take your hands and close them and make tight fists with each of your hands. Squeeze as hard as you can. And then I invite you to release that and open up your hands. And you all feel that, right? When you close those hands, they feel tight They feel stressed. You can almost feel things just kind of shrinking inside. And then when you open up, there is release. There is peace. There is restfulness. Keep that feeling in mind. Keep those thoughts in mind as we now listen to what Deuteronomy 15 has to say for us this morning. If there is among you anyone in need a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near. And therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so. For on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, Open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This is the word of God for the people of God, and God's people say, thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Come Holy Spirit and breathe life into the words that I speak, that they might carry a word from you into our hearts and lives this morning. Amen. I believe that when God witnesses poverty, God is both heartbroken and angry. I believe that this thought is borne out by the witness that we see through the pages of Scripture. God is heartbroken to see God's children suffering. And God is angry because it doesn't have to be that way. God cares about the plight of the poor, and this is something that we see across the Bible. 
And so today we're going to take a look at some places where we see evidence of this. And I've started with Deuteronomy 15 because I find this to be a foundational text for understanding how God feels about poverty and where God calls us to be and how God calls us to act in response to poverty. Now, the passage that I read this morning is verses 7 through 11 in chapter 15. And maybe you noticed as I read that it said something about the seventh year. Uh, And you might have been able to understand from the context that God was concerned about people using the seventh year as an excuse for not being generous, not helping those in need. So let me back up to the first part of Deuteronomy 15, where we learn about something called the sabbatical release. Now that word sabbatical comes from the same root as Sabbath and for very good reason. You see, just as the Sabbath is understood to be a day of rest, we get that from the story of creation. God created everything that is in six days and then rested on the seventh and in doing so gave us a model for lives that are filled with work and activity, but then also include time for rest and recovery. So here in Deuteronomy 15, God implements a cycle that provides for rest and recovery and release from debt. You see, part of the law that was, in, that was written into Torah was that every seventh year, those who were in debt would be released from that debt. In other words, the whole society hit the reset button, and there was rest and recovery from the burden that had been weighing people down. And yet, what God recognized was that the law would not be enough in and of itself. There would also be a need for action on an ongoing basis by the people in order to tend to the needs of those who found themselves impoverished, found themselves in debt, and at the mercy of others. And so one of the things that we hear in those verses today is, you will always have the poor with you, which maybe you recognized from the episode in the Gospels where Jesus' feet are anointed with expensive perfume by the woman who comes, and when she does, some of the disciples get angry, and Jesus says, the poor will always be with you. And sometimes people read that passage as if to dismiss the poor, but forget that the rest of that passage, as we find it in Deuteronomy, is there will always be poor among you, and therefore pay attention, because that means that there will always be opportunities for you to do good and to meet the needs of those who are poor. So today, I want to look with you at five things the Bible has to say about poverty. And I want to be clear at the outset that these are five things that have not been cherry-picked or are isolated based on a single verse of Scripture that we can find and pull out somewhere from the Bible. These are all themes that run through the Bible 
and for which there is evidence in multiple places across the pages of Scripture. The first thing we can say with confidence is that God acts on behalf of the poor. Time and time again, we hear in Scripture about God's commitment to take action for those who are downtrodden. And he speaks hope and comfort to them, particularly through the Psalms and the prophets. So here are just three examples, two from the Psalms and one from Isaiah. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, nor the hope of the poor perish forever. Psalm 9, verse 18. Because the poor are despoiled, because the needy groan, I will now rise up, says the Lord. I will place them in the safety for which they long. Psalm 12, verse 5. And then Isaiah gets the people's attention, as the prophets often do. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. When Jesus comes on the scene, and when he is launching his public ministry, he immediately affirms his commitment to this action on God's part on behalf of those who suffer and particularly on those who are poor. Perhaps you remember when he stands up in the temple and in the Gospel of Luke, we hear him say, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. God acts on behalf of the poor. And secondly, God sets expectations for us to act on behalf of the poor as well. And as we look at the scriptures that call us to action, what we find consistently is that we are expected to exhibit the traits of generosity and compassion and having a heart for justice. One of the ways God sets this in motion is to weave laws into the very fabric of life among God's people, which we find in the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, Deuteronomy 15 is one of those places where a law is established that helps define expectations. And there are others as well. Take this one from Leviticus 23, 22, for example. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the alien. I am the Lord your God. Don't be greedy. Don't consume everything that you think of as yours, but remember to share with others. Also, God says in Deuteronomy 24, 14, pay attention to how you treat those who are poor and are working for you. You shall not withhold the wages of poor and needy laborers, whether other Israelites or aliens who reside in your land in one of your towns. As well as establishing laws, God also speaks through the prophets to guide the people. 
God not only speaks about his own actions through the prophets, but also calls attention, and the prophets remind the people time and time again of what those expectations are. And so Zechariah 7, 9, and 10 offers us one example. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the alien, or the poor. And do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. When we get to the New Testament, we again witness Jesus modeling God's intentions for the world and also providing instructions on how we should interact with those who are poor. One of the places we see that is when he talks about the party and who gets invited to the party. In Luke 14, 13, he says, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. God acts on behalf of the poor, and God calls on God's people to act on behalf of the poor. God also cares about marketplace ethics. Integrity matters. You know, sometimes I feel like I meet somebody who has somehow managed to think that they can compartmentalize their religious life or their spiritual life from the rest of their life. And so they come to church on Sunday and they they sing a good song and they pray a good prayer and they get their praise and worship on and then they leave Monday and when they hit the workplace Monday morning, that life is completely at odds with the things that they heard in worship from Scripture and from the songs and from the prayers and from the table on Sunday. Our lives are meant to be integrated. And when we integrate all the pieces of our lives into a consistent whole, then we live with integrity. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, that means always paying attention whether it's on Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, or Saturday even, we pay attention to God's calling on our lives. The Proverbs are chock full of examples where God has something to say about this particular theme. What is desirable in a person is loyalty, and it is better to be poor than a liar. Proverbs 19:22. And then Proverbs 28:6 says, "Better to be poor and walk in integrity than to be crooked in one's ways even though rich." God cares about marketplace ethics. And we should always be attentive whatever day of the week, whatever hour of the day to how our lives are lining up to where God is calling us, particularly when it involves fairness and caring for those in need. The fourth theme we see running through Scripture, and this might be the toughest one for us to hear, and yet it is one that is prominent in numerous places, and that is that there is a judgment for failing to act on behalf of the poor. Going back to Proverbs again, those who oppress the poor insult their maker, 
when we do not see the need, when we do not do something about the need, it is an insult to the God that we claim to love and serve. Those who oppress the poor insult their maker, but those who are kind to the needy honor God. Proverbs 21, 13, if you close your ear to the cry of the poor, you will cry out and not be heard. Therefore, Amos says in chapter 5, verse 11, as we listen again to the prophets calling us back and also warning us, warning the people of what is possible when we fail to pay attention. Therefore, because you trample on the poor and take from them levies of grain, you have built houses of hewn stone, but you shall not live in them. You have planted pleasant vineyards, but you shall not drink their wine. A word that was spoken to the people of Israel about the exile that would come as a result of their failure to live according to God's laws, that they were cast out from their homeland. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament, we hear the story that Jesus tells about Lazarus and the rich man, and how the rich man had all that he possibly could in this life, and yet he failed to even notice Lazarus asking just for crumbs from the table. And so then, after they both died, Jesus tells the story of Lazarus being in the company of God and in the kingdom of heaven, and the rich man begging for mercy and finding none because... He had failed to be attentive in this life. There is a judgment, Scripture tells us, for failing to act. On the other hand, there is blessing when we do act. Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord and will be repaid in full, Proverbs 19 Verse 17, when we give, it is as if we are giving to God's own self, that verse reminds us, a theme that will be picked up again in the ministry of Jesus. And then there is that wonderful story of a man named Zacchaeus who had defrauded people in his community, who had taken more than his fair share But he had heard about this guy, Jesus, and he climbed up into a tree one day to to hear him and to see him. And when Jesus saw Zacchaeus, you remember the story perhaps, he said that he wanted to share a meal with him. And Zacchaeus' whole world changed. He shared food and conversation with Jesus. And as he listened to what Jesus had to say about what real life looks like, We hear this in Luke 19, verses 8 and 9. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today, salvation has come to this house. Today, salvation has come to this house. A reminder to us, my friends, 
that our salvation is a work in progress and isn't just about a me and Jesus thing. It involves a social dimension and how we live our lives in connection with the human family and community. And God's saving work is ongoing as we respond to God's grace in tangible ways. This idea couldn't be clearer than when we see it show up in Matthew 25 and Jesus talks about the separating of the sheep from the goats. And he says that those who paid attention to the hungry, the thirsty, those who were in prison, those who were in need and responded to them, it was as if they were responding to Jesus himself. All of these passages, all of these themes point us toward the kingdom that God has in mind. A kingdom that is meant to exist on earth as it is in heaven. And and as we listen to these passages, one of the things we hear is a call on those of us with financial resources to share them with those who do not. For all of our married lives, uh, Catherine and I have implemented as a part of our own financial management the practice of tithing, giving 10% of our income back to the church as an expression of our faith And as a way to participate in God's work in the world because we believe that the church is a part of God's plan for the healing of the nations, for the transformation both of individual lives and society so that it looks more like the kingdom. And when the church is at its best, it is participating in alleviating suffering and poverty. And I will say that over time and particularly in recent years, several years back, I began to feel more and more convicted that there was a calling on us to share more of what we had, that that tithe to the church was a foundational thing, but that in looking at how we manage the rest of our resources, God was calling us to do more and specifically to share some of what we had with organizations and with people that were doing work to alleviate poverty and suffering. Now, what I will say to you is, most days I feel like I'm just barely putting my toe in the water in that work. Most days I feel like there is so much more that I, we could be doing, and I am a novice at it. And I feel like I'm not brave enough to step further into the water of God's generosity and trust God to be more generous myself. And so I need the voices of others who can challenge and encourage me to think bigger, to think better. One of those voices is a guy by the name of Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Jonathan, in 2003, was a young man not too far out of college who went on a peacemaking mission to Iraq right around the time the war was starting there. 
And part of his story is that some members of his peacemaking team suffered severe injuries when their caravan ran over a a set of IEDs. And they were treated by Iraqi doctors in a mobile pop-up medical tent in a town called Rutba. That experience changed Jonathan's life forever. And he came home and he and his wife Leah established a home where they would gather people from the community to share life called the Rootba House in an area of Durham, North Carolina called Walltown. Jonathan has much to teach me and perhaps to teach us about what it looks like to live the life really, God really has in mind for us. So I invite you to spend just a couple of moments listening to Jonathan with me this morning. Take a look. Should we abolish wealth? Um, You know, there's been this uh, end poverty campaign and uh, I'm all about ending poverty. I'm all about the plans. Uh, uh, I mean, a lot of that stuff matters a lot in terms of global justice and and the changes in in structures. Uh, um, But to end poverty, it seems to me, we'll also have to end wealth in the sense that that we just think it's normal, you know, that the CEO of a company makes 300 times uh, the people who work for it, or that we just think it's normal that people who live in this country uh, can can live, uh, you know, at a standard of living that's just unimaginable to most people in the world. Uh, Is God trying to end wealth? Well, uh, only to the extent that that God's trying to bring us all to a place where, uh, where we can share life together and enjoy the life we were made for. I love the vision of the Magnificat where it says that the, that the mighty will be brought down low and the low places will be lifted up to prepare a way for the Lord so that all can see the glory of God together. I think that's what God's economy is bringing us into. And so uh, God's economy is a place where, um, you know, like, like Jesus said, it's hard for a rich, rich person to get in because um, if a rich person gets in, then he won't be rich anymore because if a poor person gets in, he won't be poor anymore because uh, we'll, we'll share with whoever has need. Socialism. Is it socialism? I don't think so because um, because the the idea of socialism is that you can manufacture this uh, with the state. And uh, the brilliance of Jesus is that Jesus doesn't try to institute this from the top down. Jesus says uh, uh, through tactics we can slip it in and, uh, and, and, and begin to make it happen in relationships on the ground in the places where we are such that it grows up and, and just takes over. So I don't think we need to get rid of capitalism um, uh, or try to you know, mount a campaign against socialism in the places where it exists, but rather we need, to, we need to live God's economy on the grassroots with the faith that it's like kudzu. It'll grow and take over everything. Jonathan says, is God trying to end wealth? Well, only to the extent that God is trying to bring us all to a place where we can share life together and enjoy the life we were made for. What a fantastic vision. In 1996, Catherine and I had the privilege of attending the World Methodist Conference in Brazil. 
And the day we arrived, we landed at the airport, airport in Rio de Janeiro, and our uh, van took us to the hotel where we would be staying. And on the way, we passed through Corcovado Mountain. Now, some of you may know that Corcovado is the mountain that on top of which is the statue of Christ the Redeemer, Christo Redentor, this one that you see on the screens. What you can't see in this picture are the two sides of the mountain and the very different images that you find there. Because when you leave the airport and you're on your way to Corcovado, you will drive past hillside after hillside into which the favelas, often known as the slums of Rio, are built and many people are living without electricity, without running water. They are some of those nearly 700 million living in extreme poverty. And then you get to the mountain and you go through a tunnel that takes you through and when you come out on the other side, there are high-rise condominiums and beautiful beaches and fancy restaurants and five-star hotels. And there is Cristo Redentor on the mountaintop with arms extended to both sides saying, get to know each other, care for each other, love one another, share with one another what you have so that you might all have the very best life that God intended for you all. May those of us who have ears hear. Amen.